listening to the Insight to Action podcast. My name is Donna Jones, and my work lies in the field of decision-making for complex environments in business and in global decisions. I just got back from the Global Challenges Foundation conference in Stockholm, Sweden, where a group of about 300 of us met to see what would happen with the 14 finalists that went through the contest. Now, to give you a bit of background, the contest was launched by the founder of Global Challenges Foundation, Laszlo Zambatalvi, who who actually has quite a story. He's a billionaire, and he has put up the funds for the Global Challenges Foundation contest, which was posted at $5 million. 2,700 people around the world submitted, groups as well. I certainly submitted with a colleague of mine in Germany, Thomas Uli. And out of that, through a very comprehensive selection process that involved regional committees and so forth, they selected 14 finalists. Now, these 14 finalists really spanned quite a range. I mean, they asked for a global governance system, but they, they got a combination of something that would be a global governance system, but maybe was not recognizable as such, or was smaller experiments that tweaked the existing framework, particularly at the institutional, and under that subtext, read UN level. So we went there to hear these 14 finalists to see who was going to come out on top. The jury was very comprehensive and, and well distributed globally, but also from, from a practical point of view. Most of them, uh, there was a lot of academia, but there was also former, vice pre- former prime ministers of, of countries, climate challenge countries in particular. So extremely interesting process to be involved in. I got there because one of the last finalists in the project, uh, in the process, was a colleague of mine, Souchon. And Souchon is uh, is the CEO of Sway, which is a distributed power decision-making app. And his made it through to the final, and in fact, he, he won. But more on that later. He won one of the three prizes, which uh, will help move that project forward. And I'll explain the importance of that later on in this in this program. So very exciting process. We were there. Day one was public. Uh, that was where everybody went into a dark room and go through who's it in downtown Stockholm. And we heard from different groups within the, you know, just distributed across the UN on what's going on, uh, what are the issues, you know, really a, a chance to get a, a wider overview of, of what was happening, why it was important. Now, it's important to know that the, the Global Challenges Foundation, Laszlo, has quite a story. So let's start with that story because it sort of explains how to, it came out with the Global Catastrophic Risks Port. So uh, Laszlo Zemvat-Falvi you know, had an interesting background because he grew up in Hungary, uh, heavily influenced by World War II. He's 92 now. He finished his, his secondary school just before the end of the war. His brother died in a, la- in a Russian labor camp, and, and Budapest itself was under siege for several months, as well as being bombed. So he experienced uh, some of the worst things from humanity from a violent, aggressive point of view. When the UN came about, it was quite a natural thing to do, but he also recognizes that it uh, wasn't able to live up to its, its intention or its goal. He went in for to law for three years, and at the moment it became politicized. In other words, the university required 20 books on Marxism and Leninism that all students had to be read and tested on in order to get their diploma. 
it became pretty clear the legal profession had been politicized, so he left his studies with 18 months left to go and signed up for a magic program, which I think is a really cool idea, at the uh, State Academy of Performing Arts. And it had been a hobby for him, but it became he became a professional musician out of it. And, and I think what that did was, you know, sort of focus his mindset a bit because a true magician, quote, this is off the site, a true magician doesn't wonder so much if something can be done, but focuses on how. So, and, and magicians are often expected to do the impossible. So you, you, you really, there's a lot of parallels between that perspective and what we're dealing in the world today. He, he came to Sweden uh, and landed in a refugee camp and he did not speak Swedish, so and there was no school for Swedish. He didn't have English either, uh, so the only thing he had was a Hungarian-Swedish glossary of about 600 words, and so he just did what everybody else would do in those environments. You listen and read and then try and guess what's going on. During the first little bit, he did really ordinary kinds of jobs and began taking a business course by correspondence, and then he became interested in stocks. And when he got interested in stocks, he started trading. And that's when he started getting more and more and more into the arena of risks. He did liquidate his stock portfolio just before the great stock market crash. He had developed out of that a financial risk analysis approach that created the wealth he has today. This is interesting because he... He said, when I take a risk, I want to know how large the risk is and figure out whether it's wise to do it. You know, it's just what, what are my options here? And there's a variety of different, there's damage that can occur. And, and of course, you know, th this is relevant in terms of global world right now because we've got climate change risks and damage that's going on in the world. And it's not often being calculated in, in business calculations or except other than a cost, but but maybe not necessarily as, as an opportunity. So, but here is where we get into the global catastrophic risks, which is the framework that was presented to the workshop or to our workshop conversations, which took place on the Monday and Tuesday of last week, and uh, which is why I didn't publish on Friday. It, it gives you an indication of what the small little shifts can do in terms of impact. So he developed this, this uh, risk analysis framework, and then made made millions of dollars. So his portfolio, when he started the Global Challenges Foundation in 2012, his portfolio was valued to be at U.S. 110 million. So he started with a small amount of capital. The rate of return has been about 30 percent for over a 46-year period. So <laughs> pretty impressive for a refugee from Hungary. Started up the foundation in 2012, and out of that, he did that. He was very much inspired to, to look more closely at how are we handling what's going on in the world today. He set up the Global Challenges Foundation because he realized that to solve, we were trying to solve the problems of today with, with the tools of yesterday, so multilateral negotiations and so forth, which means things are either inadequate or completely useless. So he turned his attention to seeing what the what the uh, biggest catastrophic threats are, and then how we could handle how we could tackle them, and what was the level of risk involved. And he's engaged a considerable number of people in this. So the the the, the taxonomy, the risks that we have in front of us in the workshop mode were weapons of mass destruction, which included nuclear warfare, uh, includes biological and chemical warfare, 
Uh, then there's catastrophic global climate change, and without question, that one sat right at the top of absolutely everyone's. Anytime we had a keynote, it was that was the issue on top. And because, of course, it predicts a whole lot of other things like ecological collapse, pandemics, supervolcanic eruption. All of these are related to climate changing. Sorry, asteroid impact is the risk identified as a wild card, more or less. We don't know. We've had several close calls in the recent, just recently. Geoengineering, in other words, our our need to manipulate our environments may get us into massive amounts of trouble. Uh, artificial intelligence, you know, when ethically, many of those discussions are not being had on the surface. So AI and AI-powered weaponry could well be an issue. And then there was a number of other, un, you know, sort of unknown, lesser known risks, shall we say, that that were uh, tabled in front of us. So lots of information. You can get a book called The Global Catastrophic Risk 2017, which does a nice job of laying out uh, the scope, depth, and some of the things that are being done and, and so forth uh, for you if you're, if, you're, if you're interested. Now, as I said before, there were two days of workshops full on, um, Monday and Tuesday of last week, which is uh, in May, May 27th, uh, many, May 28th and 29th. And in those workshops, we had a mixed bag of really seasoned international professionals coming from all over the world. In my own working group, which uh, there were, by the way, four streams. Well, there were three streams, and then their fourth was added. These, four, these streams were identified by the kind of thema- themes that were being followed in the submissions to the Global Challenges Foundation. So that included looking at new models, which is the group I was in, of course, also looking at tweaking existing models was the other category, and looking at uh, other models of decision-making was, was the, uh, the other category. So we were assigned to groups, which worked pretty well, and, and certainly interesting. The fourth group was building a community, because it's being recognized that governments are really not very well equipped to handle these big issues, uh, particularly with the trend and the, the, the drift toward nation-state self-determination at the expense of the global sustainability. And, uh, you know, a quick look at the political banter going back and forth between North Korea and the United States is an indication of what that looks like. So those were the four groups. And people got together in those four groups and then through a facilitated process came up with a theme that, or came up with a topic at least, that you could wrestle down to the ground over the next two days and then present uh, to the larger group in in a pretty much a gallery board kind of process. If you're a facilitator like I am, uh, you're kind of tracking it on multiple levels, both as a participant and as a uh, process designer. Anyway, so when we got into our group, we actually had two topics come together, which was not was quite messy. So we had to, and they were very different, actually. So we really had to work that one out. And uh, some groups really took off and went through all 14 and said, look, these are the ones we want to cobble together and present as more of a, a fresher governance model. We had a topic of violence. We were looking at the map weapons of mass destruction, and we had a topic of, of how to mitigate the violence. And boy, I tell you, it was extremely interesting because at the table we had talking about the Kashmirian conflict which is 25 years old started on territorial disputes and is still going on we had 
Georgia, which is occupied by Russia. There are Russian troops 40 kilometers out of Tbilisi. And that was a conversation about resilience at the business level because the way the sanctions were put on the business community, it, the question was, how do you can keep functioning? And it wasn't by following the rules necessarily. So lots of resilience is shown in that initiative. We had Uganda, which uh, was interesting too, because you have 10 tribes, only an oral language, and no real way of reaching uh, people in any kind of consistent fashion. So little in the way of tech available, but very tech-savvy individuals if you, because these kids are extremely creative. And finally, we had Sri Lanka as well. And, and we had someone who's working with us in the UN who, who could bring forward the whole topic of youth as well. So that's where we kind of, we wound up talking about the 408 million youth under the age of 30 who are living in violent conditions. And that's a shocking number. And I certainly, living in Vancouver, Canada, where life is good, everything is extremely peaceful for the most part living here. And uh, we, ha- we have, of course, refugees. And it's, it's a very different environment, but it's not familiar. Our, our environment here is not familiar with that kind of violent aggression. So it's, uh, it's an extremely interesting topic because the question is, how do you tackle that? So there's the, the first half of this program then is just about giving you the lay of the land and certainly what our topic is about. And then in the next little bit, what I'd like to do is just share with you uh, where we are taking it and uh, where we think we're going with it, <laughs> at least. Because these issues are complex and, and what's the same about global issues and business issues is, is there comp- there, there's a level of complexity involved, but there's also a requirement for some very bold leadership you know, to really transcend patterns that have really holding certainly the performance of companies back, but also the capacity of countries to meet the needs of their capacity of governments in particular to meet the needs of their citizen population. So what we did in looking at uh, this issue of youth violence and their vulnerability to being engaged in terrorism activities and terrorist organizations, as you look at what terrorist organizations do, and they're extremely clever at providing an inspirational purpose, an education, and a sense of belonging. So growth, a sense of belonging, and a sense of purpose. Now those are three things that we all need and are deeply, innately human fundamental needs. So it wouldn't if you were in business, you would, it would be exactly the same thing. The, the book Lost Connections that I've been reading as research for the virtual um, for the tech app I've been working on talks about the, the nine different ways in which we've become disconnected. And the way, of course, you reconnect is through meaningful purpose, meaningful values, exactly the same sorts of things. So a lot of parallels to be found there. Secondly, we were looking at, if you, if you look tradi- at the traditional approaches to very, tri- very tricky issues like this globally, there's still an overwhelming tendency to think linearly. You know? And so you have organizations who are specializing in conflict resolution, but the conflicts never resolve themselves. So the opportunity is to use the conflict to transcend 
those conditions and to really rise above them. And to do that, you have to go to a much more deeper uh, conversation, a much more deeper level of dialogue that really takes you into the realm of empathy, where you can stand in someone else's shoes. Now, this is something that really stands out in Uganda, where, for example, as I said earlier, 10 tribes, they've traditionally been fighting with each other since time began. That's Africa. I've traveled through Africa. And apartheid was still there in the 70s and um, have been through another time since. Uh, It's very much a continent filled with those kinds of, uh, of skirmishes, along with a number of other types of skirmishes as well. At any rate, what what it means in Africa is is uh, having stronger empathy for what's going on on the ground. So there's no solutions that can ever, in any situation, be imposed. You're, you can only go in with, I think, strategies that allow you to find out whether or not there is some receptivity to begin to bring people together toward more functioning society, if you will. So, so the second level then is connecting through empathy, uh, looking more deeply, standing in the other shoes. The third level is at the strategic side of it to to work with the 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 system as a complex living system. Now, I know I get myself into trouble with this because if you're a linear thinker, you're saying to yourself, and this happened actually at the, the conference, we had somebody come up and say, well, how is working with youth going to solve ma- weapons of mass destruction? Well, you know, it takes somebody to push the button, and it also takes somebody to choose not to push the button. And so the idea is to uh, is to work at that level where those better choices can be made, those better decisions can be made. And obviously we cannot look to world leadership for that because, as we've seen, uh, two world leaders who are busy competing for the size of their red button is not going to inspire a youth to, to uh, look for more uh, peaceful solutions. So, and even the word peace itself has a stigma attached to it, which is quite odd. So, the we've, we're learning how to avoid that word as well, and just work toward getting things done on the ground level that make sense, have meaning, restore prosperity, and work with the deeper part of the system where small effort. It's the emotional social current. So, in terms of strategy, then. What we're looking at, it's the same set of strategies for business, is you're looking at transforming, in this case, through narrative. What are the stories that show us that we are capable of being resilient in very tough circumstances? What are the stories that show us that we don't have to live the pattern of violence over and over and over again? What are the stories that show there is a future with hope? What are the stories that can shift focus from negative, from destruction, into creative, into construction. And this is really the chance or the opportunity for experimentation that we're developing now, pursuing that over the next week, uh, and then submitting it hopefully for working group funding so that we can flesh some some experiences out and, and work toward the, the direction that the Globe Foundation, Challenges Foundation has laid out for us, which is to is the fall, the November a conference being put on by, uh, by Macron in Paris to work toward a more, a more peaceful approach, on a, certainly on a multi-level basis. Now, ours was only one of, I don't know, 25, like a, a whole bunch of working groups. 
And so the only one I saw was one that was similar to our own proposal, our own uh, project proposal. And so we'll be some collaboration with them. But but the other proposals we have not seen, and I, I do hope uh, because they had visual facilitation in the room, I'm really hoping that they, they share that with us in a book form so that the, those of us that were sharing our experiences and unable to do the walkabout uh, will actually be able to see where we can cross-pollinate and who we can bring in where it makes sense. We also, in the course of our conversations, went back to the 14 finalist proposals, both in person and in the proposal format, because there's a massive book published on it. And we went back in there and looked at who's got something in there, for example, collaboration platform, because one of the things that could well help people in dealing with high, high conflict zones, which is difficult, is a place to go where you can ask for help, look for support, see what other strategies are available that maybe worked in other conditions, and you might try them in your own depending on, on the uh, factors involved and so forth. And, and so in, in that, there's uh, collaboration platforms were included in Morris Short's Evolutionary Organizations uh, proposal, which made finalists. So she and I spoke, and she shared a, a collaboration a file of, of collaboration platforms. And, of course, there's also the work by Lisette Sutherland, uh, on remote collaboration, a colleague of mine as well, out of the Netherlands. So lots of different possibilities here for that kind of development. And so what, what you're really then seeing from a, from a decision-making point of view is it, in terms of how the project would be guided, is it has to be extremely flexible to meet local conditions. There's no imposition. This has to be something that is grown at the grassroots captured in story, shared by in story, because story is a universal language, and and uh, worked with at that level. It also goes beyond that, because in engaging youth in the story process, you can also work with journalists in training the youth on how to capture stories, do it through media, iPads, whatever else, and then also start to develop the skills for restoring their communities to a healthier state. So no shortage of opportunities here. I'm not giving you the whole framework, obviously, because that needs a map, <laughs> pictures, and a lot of other things. But I am attempting, at least, to give you um, a sense that, that this is systems uh, thinking, but it's also built on empathic decision-making. It's not linear thinking. And yet, if you are a linear thinker, thinker uh, it, it's, it's very hard to, to sort of step into it unless you see what the logic is. And in this case, the logic's pretty simple. If you're going to push the button of red mass, of mass, the red button that uh, triggers mass destruction, you can equally not trigger it. And the logic is we're aiming at the human level. The uh, title we had for our presentation was called Battle for Humanity, which is also a UN video game. But it's also, and we also uh, uh, co-subtitled that Ubuntu, seeing the world through other people's shoes. So Ubuntu is been labeled, it's a Zula word, uh, but it's also been labeled to software, free open source software, and uh, it, it showed up on a cup saver in Whole Foods the other day. I saw there were some some cup, um, fabric cup holders that were coming out of Kenya, handmade. So that's those are the, that's the direction that we're looking at, and I have no idea where it's going, but it's exciting and fun and uh, diverse and brings together quite a group of people. We have two people from the UK, 
on our team. One is tech and the other one is more in the area in the arena of biotech. We have, as I mentioned, the, the four people from, from uh, the various nations and then we have me and, and my role as a uh, designer of, of uh, transformational strategies working in complex systems. So it's going to be a, a lot of fun. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, we are working on our proposal now. We have to submit it by June 10th. Uh, there is a place for working groups to sign up or for you to sign up on a working group. I have no idea what the back end will look like. That's very vague to me. Uh, but I do encourage you, if you're interested in participating in one of those four different areas, uh, to definitely definitely go on the website, which is the global, just go, just Google Global Challenges Foundation org and you'll read a whole lot of in detail they also have a ton of resource information so you can download the global catastrophic risks you can download what journalists are doing worldwide um, you can download a lot of stuff on why Laszlo started this foundation and and where it you know what where people are taking it so the three finalists that came out of the end uh, one was a tweaking the UN process. Uh, the other one was was uh, a similar kind of thing, but it was the, working with the 21st century. The actual title was Global Governance and the Emergence of Global Institutions for the 21st Century. And, and then there was um, the AI-supported global governance through bottom-up deliberation, which is uh, Sushant uh, Zangnapur and my colleague. So that's the overview of what we were working on. You can all look at the website for building blocks for a new shape of global cooperation. That's where the 14 finalists are, are spelled out. Anyway, it's a different kind of podcast show today. I hope you enjoyed it. I just thought I'd report on what I was doing last week in terms of work. It was a lot of fun. And I do hope that, that you found it interesting as well. Thanks very much for listening. You'll be hearing some programs that I'll do with a number of people from the conference who are working on some really interesting projects that will have real relevance to your world and what you're doing. Anyway, meanwhile, thank you very much for listening. Check me out on Twitter, Donna, D-A-W-N-A underscore Jones, or you can uh, join up with me on LinkedIn at Donna H. Jones would be the initial. And also there's Facebook, which is From Insight to Action, I've written The Decision-Making for Dummies, which is a more advanced book, by the way, and I've also got a chapter in The Intelligence of the Cosmos by Irvin Laszlo, and very soon we've got a book coming out called From Hierarchy to Higher Performance, and my chapter in there was The, high, the Hidden Cost of Ignoring Workplace Health. So lots of stuff going on. Thanks for listening. Please share if you found this of value and uh, want to share it with other people. I'd appreciate it.